HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes and reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media, at thefoodballer. Today, joining me in the studio is uh, my friend and former employer, former shopmate, etc., cetera, uh, David Vergona, who's the owner and head honcho at David Thomas Works. Uh, he's a general contractor here in New York City and has a ton of experience building restaurants, stores, uh, buildings, everything from simple cabinets to complete gut renovations. Uh, I think David has probably seen it all. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what that's like uh, to work in that space here in New York. Thanks, David. Thank you for having me. So, uh, David, I, uh, you know, wanted to have you on the show, um, to, to sort of, you know, talk about things. People go to restaurants. This is, you know, this network is about food and we talk a lot about restaurants and a lot about, a lot about food. Um, but not often I think do people think about what goes into actually making a space where you can do that. And, you know, sure we eat at street carts where, you know, you're basically eating street off the, you know, food off the street. Um, but there's a lot that goes into making a restaurant and making it into a real place. Um, so how many, how many restaurant and food spaces you built the Brooklyn kitchen for us? I know you worked on foster sundry and other sort of food prep stores, the meat hook, um, a lot of different places. I don't know off the top of my head. I didn't do any research beforehand, but I think maybe about seven or eight. Yeah. Um, ones that are still around. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Right. So restaurants open and close all the time, For right? Sure. So you you see that stuff happen as a uh, as a contractor. I mean, we first met working on Monkey Town. Yeah. Uh, actually, we met before that, but I worked for you. I was your employee working yep. on that job, uh, building Monkey Town, and I forget what that is now. I was by that block recently. It's something else. Yeah. But that, that wall that long, of press actually. board that I remember nailing up is still there. Um, how did you how did you become a, a contractor? Like how did you how did you get into? Did you think that you were going to be a tradesperson growing up? You know, it's funny. 
a lot of people ask me that, and I feel like I have that similar story to most people, that I just needed something to do for some money. And I was young, and I had this strange opportunity that presented itself when I was hanging out at a bar that I used to pick up work being a bouncer at. And um, I needed some day work. Someone said, well, would you like to do some construction? And I thought, well, I'm sort of handy from living in... When I was uh, a teenager, I lived in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, and I said, well, sure, I'll check it out. So my first job was doing demolition and repairing sheetrock uh, for Robert De Niro. <laughs> Not directly for him, but for a contractor who was working on his apartment. And it was such a strange experience that uh, I accidentally never looked back. Right. Um, and so, I mean, in, in becoming that kind of person and becoming a general contractor, you really, you are a true generalist, right? I mean, at least in my experience, you are someone who can do sheetrock and do plumbing and do electrical and weld and do glass and cabinetry and fine finish work. I mean, sort of, you name it, right? You do it. Yeah. I mean, I sort of made it a point to try to check all the boxes. A, it got kind of boring to do just one thing. Not that there isn't something to be said about you know, master of all trades, master of none. Right. But at the same time, in the world of building, everything's so comprehensive. I mean, you're talking here about restaurants. There's so many facets that go into this. You can't just know one thing because you're going to run into others. And I find that the people that stand in the room and fix the light switch, but like the heat goes off and they don't know what to do, they're stuck. So right. it helps us and behooves us to sort of know as much as possible. And I think a restaurant is also represents something really interesting in, that's very different than, say, building an apartment or building a house where in a house, you know, it's certainly in the, in this day and age, right in the, in the age of home Depot, which I mean, when we were kids, there wasn't home Depot. You had to go to the plumbing store for plumbing and you had to go to the lumber yard for lumber. And if you wanted like paint, you went to the paint store in the age of sort of the DIY home Depot era, you can sort of get everything you need at a home Depot and lots of people fix things themselves for building out a space like a restaurant only some of that stuff, right? The front of house is kind of like building an apartment or doing cabinetry, and the back of house is all commercial and it's totally different. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something about the interface with all the, tra like, the mechanical-type trades in the back that separates it from everything else. In an apartment building, normally, you have services and facilities that are either provided from you in the background, for you in the background, or by the building in some way. You never think about it. So, four walls and a funeral sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you throw the walls up, you put some stuff on it, somebody puts a little, you know, looks on Pinterest and sees some nice paint. Right. But that doesn't heat you, cool you, yeah. make sure it drains correctly, etc. Right. And those things for as many Home Depot stores as there are, the trial and error involved with that is so extreme. And the stakes in restaurants are so, obviously, especially in New York, are so extreme. I mean, there's money, time, people, reviews. You can't screw it up too many times. In theory, so sure. I mean, I, I always find it interesting, and, and I always find finish work to be very interesting to notice um, because it's one of those things where you know you need a six burner stove right in the kitchen to do a certain amount of production to do a certain you know you need certain things. Do you need really fancy black glass tile in your bathroom? <laughs> right. I mean, like I you know I, I think about this stuff a lot when I go to restaurants, and you know the fact is that. You know, while it may, and, and these are the intangibles, right, that affect those experience, you mentioned review, that affect the, that experience, if the bathroom is beautiful and if there's, you know, if there's flower, fresh flowers in the bathroom, those sorts of mm. things affect your experience, but how much is that high-end finish really worth it Absolutely. at a certain point? I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this as well. 
It reminds me of a time many years ago when I read a critique of the Michelin star system where they commented how, I believe it was Danielle or something, had an unfair advantage because their flower budget was so much that it helped enable them to secure that extra half a star to vaunt them into, like, the next level. Right. And so being somebody who builds for people, you know, we encounter some interesting conundrums where budget, what people want for the budget is important. And those front-of-the-house black glass tiles that you referenced those are the most expensive part of the project, usually, right. or at least the composite. And I also wonder, could you shave it back to a degree where you could find a little bit of a better balance? But I think that the competition is so extreme here and so great, and there are so few things that differentiate people that designers usually who are engaged by these folks to help set them apart believe that it's the only way to separate you. And I'm not sure if that's true, but I think that the evidence isn't the contrary so unless you see someone else not do it it's hard to say right I'm not sure right so it's a, it's a very good point and and then of course there's the other side of that coin where you know depending on what you're sort of going for i mean i sort of you know we're here sitting at roberta's i kind of can't imagine the bathroom at roberta's without stickers all over it right <laughs> i mean like if, if i walked in here tomorrow and suddenly it was all black glass tile i feel like that would somehow clash with the aesthetic and the, absolutely the feeling of the place there is something that to be said about roberta's which is magical in that it's one of the few places that got to maintain its aesthetic and its business rise above it. Yep. Whereas like the Mars bar, for example, you think the same thing, but Mars bar is gone. Right. Sure. And there aren't really any places anymore like this that can thrive quite like this because the, I hate saying it this way, but the non, let's just say, I don't know what kind of culture. Some people call them the uppies sometimes. Some call them other <laughs> things, but the people usually that sure. come in and gentrify and have more money don't, unless there's some cachet already, really are looking for that bobo, that sort of bohemian bourgeois look, yep. which might pretend to be sort of downscale minimalist, but it costs a lot to achieve, both yeah. in resource, money, and time. Right. You know, which is... Right. I mean, there's the, there's the old thing about, you know, you, you can either... Things can either be done right or done cheap or done fast. Fast, good, and cheap. Pick any two. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, you know... Um, and, and I have to imagine that's a conversation you have day in and day out with your clients. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's not even a conversation. It's just something that exists and people ignore, us included in the past. But it's something you can't get get around. There's another adage, which is, cock, putty, and paint, make it what it ain't. And that only exists in so much as a photo shoot. But people sure. treat spaces sometimes like, well, whatever, it's an old heater and it'll still work. And I mean, look, when we met, I, <laughs> when we shared shop space, I was making scenery, which was exactly that, right? It was not made, it was made to look good for a very short amount of time, you know, fashion shows and things like that. It didn't have to last. It last, it was like a, an hour long. It just needed to be good for an hour. Yep. Whereas you're building stuff that hopefully, you know, in many cases is going to last for years. Agreed. Many, many years ago, we built a, I uh, worked for a company that built a club and they were such a bad company, oh my goodness. They, they were a huge union, half union, half regular company. And they got this job building a club called Speed. I think it was on 39th Street. And that, uh, sure us as carpenters. Like Mars Mars yeah. bar, right? And us as carpenters were in charge of sort of doing some of the decorating. And they had this thing where they had a train blowing through the wall, which was the DJ booth. And it was all actually made out of sculpted styrofoam <laughs> blocks. In that, in that place once. Yeah. It was all, and it was such garbage that. I think people started climbing on it when they were high. And about two months later, they had to redo the whole thing. So you sort of get what you pay for in the end one way or another. Yeah. 
So uh, let's turn the conversation uh, a little bit towards towards food, right? I mean, you're in an industry where people are physically working very hard. Um, sometimes, especially like on a day like today, I bet you have probably have guys who are working on a roof. It's yeah. 85 degrees plus the heat coming off the roof. Um, you know, how do how does food play into what you guys do? Is there you know are there particular foods that you people do eat on the job that you like to eat on the job things that you sort of stay away from um how do you guys address it that's a great question i feel like it has a couple different answers number one as you know in most construction world we work with different um you know a lot of times different immigrants who come from different places and they have pensions for their particular sort of home food right but you're also then working all of the city so exactly. you might be in different yeah. neighborhoods and so one of the irony or one of the interesting things about that is so, for example, if people come from Latin America or South America and may not have access to that, there does seem to be, like, the catch-all food. Everybody eats cheap Chinese takeout and thinks it's amazing. <laughs> and I think it's a combination between the fact that it's the cheapest food you can buy. Right. Especially when we're working in sort of upscale neighborhoods. Right. It's fairly portable, and you can save it for later, and it doesn't immediately go bad mm. or turn into something that's inedible. Right. So, for example, on a day like today, when it's really hot, you're not that hungry but you need the energy. So a lot of the times, you know, we'll take lunch, wait a couple hours and eat some more. And you can do that with Chinese food. Right. No, in a way a that very, you can do with other things. It's a really, it's a really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. I, you know, I was just looking at the, I just had, had read a metric the other day that, you know, in the United States as a whole, there are, I think, two or three times as many Chinese restaurants as there are McDonald's. <laughs> And so, you know, think, thinking about that, right, and, and your point is your point is well taken. Like, you know, in if you're working on the Upper West Side, there's cheap Chinese takeout. And if you're working in Bushwick, there's cheap Chinese takeout. And if you're, you know... It also transcends language. Right. A lot of sure. people don't speak English and speak many different languages. They look at the board. It has a little picture. Once they identify what it is, you know, when someone takes a lunch order, it's not hard to kind of remember that simple word as opposed to having to dictate... I'd like a sandwich with this, without that, this, that, the other thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that is amazing for me and makes me very lucky is a couple of the guys that have um, take uh, food that they take from home. I get to eat food periodically when they give me some that their wives or other folks make. That's eating at the best, you know. Right. I hate using this word, but that ethnic restaurant or whatever that flavor sure. is around. Sure. And over the years... Everywhere from folks from Africa, Malaysia, all the Latin countries. So you you managed to sort of have this incredible like uh, breadth of knowledge about immigrant food because they're bringing it to work. Absolutely, or at least the taste of it. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, the taste is the knowledge, right? For sure, and that's something that we normally wouldn't get to normally right. in a general week. Much or, less. Or in construction in another place, right? I mean, in, in construction in in another city. You know, on a, on a construction crew, the roach coach might pull up and everybody's eating the same, you know, the same yeah. crap. You know, it's, a, it, it, it's interesting to be doing that in the city and sort of the, the bouncing around-ness um, of it. I mean, you know, we feel, you know, we're, we, have a, we have a babysitter and nanny for our, for our daughter. And we've, we've had one for our daughter and now have one for our young son who is Nepalese. And, you know, she very graciously, you know, for a birthday or whatever will bring us a plate of dumplings 
and they're incredible. And I, you know, I've been trying to get her to actually come to the Brooklyn Kitchen and teach a class on Nepalese momos because they're awesome. They're so good. Yeah, and that's right from the source. Yeah, and I, you know, and I and I visited her kitchen, and you know, seeing the way that that people people cook in those communities too is fascinating to me. And I don't know if that's something that you end up seeing as you're sort of doing work. I assume a lot of the work you're doing is in wealthier for wealthier people, but you know. Going into her apartment, she had strips of uh, strips of crosscut like pork ribs drying yeah. in her kitchen. That she dries them and then freezes them and then cooks with them later. But she had them sort of hung on strings all over the. And I, was, I, I walked in. I said, "What? What is it?" And she explained to me the process. Where I'd never seen anything. You know, they weren't really curing. They were just sort of drying. It wasn't like they were salted. They, you know, just to dry them out. And it was a texture issue. It was to get some of the water out yeah. before cooking with them. And just the texture. But when they're cooked, is you know part of the part of the food and part of what they're making absolutely i noticed when i was just peeking at your questions that we'll get to later when i actually growing up i um experienced a little bit of that because like you said now most of our clients have a little more money just to support the fact that we have different sort of overhead but when i growing up in a pretty poor area i got to see most of that stuff firsthand um and here even here periodically depending we're, uh, let's take a we'll take a short break and hear from uh, Firesider, our sponsor today uh, here on Feast Your Ears. And when we come back, uh, we'll uh, we'll touch on uh, your uh, your growing up in uh, in Arizona and in uh, in uh, Minnesota as well. And this is called Track for Thing by Soy. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Uh, I will mention that if you are in Brooklyn, we have Fire Cider, uh, today's sponsor. We do sell their product at the Brooklyn Kitchen. I love it. I uh, highly recommend uh, checking it out. It is, it is in fact, delicious and spicy and a great pick-me-up. Uh, I'm in the process of writing a book about vinegar and uh, have a piece about Fire Cider as uh, what, you know, what they talk about as a sort of historic um, New England uh, sort of cure-all. Um, it definitely, it'll definitely wake you up, get you going in the morning, make you feel better if you have a cold, clear out your sinuses, uh, and probably a whole host of other things. So, 
uh, check it out. Uh, today I'm speaking with David Vergona uh, in the studio, who is a general contractor here in New York City, um, about you know contracting food, uh, you know a lot of things. We were talking before the break about the vast variety of different ethnic cuisines David's been able to try because of the places his crew is from. Um, when I used to work on David's crew, I found it amazing the variety of, of people and cultures represented there. Um, so right now, just to go through it, so on your on your sort of regular team of people, you have uh, Ivory Coast, right? Guatemala. Where else? Honduras, Mexico, sometimes one from China, actually mainland China. Um, Argentina. Argentina. Some Western Europeaners who come in and out. Yeah, it's an, it's, a, it's a it's an interesting it's a really it's an interesting mix. It's a, it, and and you were talking before the break about there being certain like language barriers, and it's very interesting to watch a group of group of men. I mean, it's all men work together who really don't speak the same language, except that they all, in many cases, you know, if they know how to hang sheetrock, they know how to hang sheetrock, and so yeah. that becomes the the action becomes the common language. Absolutely. It's also interesting to see how they learn to communicate in another language, which is sometimes nonverbal, sometimes is verbal in maybe their own native languages, but they use it in their strange... It's not even like automatopoeia or Esperanto or one of those things. It's They kind of use the words as hammers. I don't <laughs> know how else to explain it, metaphorically. <laughs> so, I like that, though, as a metaphor. I mean, speaking of the Broken Kitchen, I remember once there was a guy who worked with us for a long time <clears throat> from Malaysia, and I think he might have been born, I think he had a strange experience. I think he was born in China, grew up in Malaysia, spent a lot of time in the Philippines and in um, New Zealand. So a lot of people in the Philippines speak Spanish because of the missionaries. And he spoke the strangest amalgam of languages and a language that was sort of piecemeal. When he would speak to the guys in Spanish. It, it was like a different Spanish. It was a totally yeah. different, you know, dialecticized Spanish and they had all different kind of you know words for things so they would invent words you know so if right. he didn't know the word for sheetrock and sheetrock they would call it something else and I was always <laughs> kind of stunned but it got it got done you know yeah. everyone just looks I up mean I guess that, that's an interesting like you know that's an interesting idea about learning language right you think of you know kids come up with words for things that are sort of nonsense um, you know when I was a little kid my mom told me that when I was little, I don't remember this, that the color blue I called ple. Mm -hmm. And blueberries were called pleti. Right? And horses were called footy. <laughs> but, you know, but, but that wasn't, that's not just a kid thing, right? It's the way the human brain works. And so that's obviously right. these guys are coming up with words as a, and they're, you know, but remember, creating communication. Sure. It's only nonsense until a couple people connect with it. And yeah. it's not nonsense anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, back to the food thing, it's funny how it's whatever it takes to combine everybody and to make everybody feel... Connected, right? Whether it's hanging sheetrock or sharing lunch. Yeah. In fact, sharing lunch is probably the area that most impacts me at work. Speaking of food, because there's also a lot of prejudices in the world, and I experience a lot of that in work. A lot of these folks have preconceived ideas about who each other are, mm. and there can be a lot of discomfort at first. And what's amazing is it's usually around lunch over time that people begin to accept each other, learn about each other and connect. And it's over whatever, sharing Chinese food or right. someone's wife sitting made, on an overturned five gallon bucket. Probably somebody's right? wife made chilirianos and somebody else's wife made something else and they just mix them together. 
and I've I don't know it's touching. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. You mentioned you mentioned uh, the food when you were growing up and having seen different ways that people prepare food. So um, you spent a a great deal of your early childhood right in Mm -hmm. in Arizona um, near a reservation, right? So when I was very young, I lived in Sells, Arizona, which is a an area on Native American Indian Reservation, and I don't have great memories of that. It's mostly through photographs, and then my parents moved to Nogales, which is on the Mexican border, and that I obviously have a lot of memories about. And being in that, and basically, Nogales was split by the border. It didn't grow up on either side. So there's Does Nogales. the city itself actually exist on both sides? It does. Nogales, huh. Sonora, which is south Nogales, yeah, sure. and Nogales. So being a town that wasn't invented later, after the <coughs> sorry division. Right, it, it existed before there before that was a state and before there was a yeah. line and all that stuff. And it has, so it has a very homogeneous culture, <laughs> especially in food. So speaking of houses, like I would go to my father was a physician at my father's nurse's house, and she lived on the American side, and her husband had gotten caught for doing something really silly when he was younger and couldn't come back, so she lived on the other side. <laughs> They called the other side of the line. And, for example, both of their houses, like, they would have different things hanging up, drying from chilies to pork fat to other things. And the the thing I most remember is this funny sound. Sounded like odd intermittent clapping. And it was the older women getting together making tortillas and slapping them together against their hands before they put them on the grill. And it's something that, being that I was mostly raised by them when my parents worked as de facto nannies, sort of. I um, I got comfortable with and got to eat, of course. Right. Delicious. In that case, it was Mexican food. Yeah. So then what did, so, and then growing up, what did your parents, what did your parents cook? So my mom. I mean, you were, you were obviously eating that food because that's where you lived, but. Right. My mom, so my dad is Italian by nationality, I guess, by descent. Um, so my mom liked to cook Italian food. And I think because of that and the fact that her parents are Mediterranean as well, from Armenia and Syria, and um, a couple of little places, she sort of just started to work on all those Mediterranean-influenced recipes. And so I can't remember anything particular that stands out in my mind. I just remember that growing up, I always felt that my mom made the best food. Right. And all most of the other parents didn't. And that really got showcased when we moved to Minnesota when I was 12, which is a hard time to move anyway Right. for a kid. Sure. My parents were considered extremely odd because they used spices. So garlic, cumin, <laughs> coriander, <laughs> things that people just they couldn't quite understand. Right. You know, salt and pepper, what else would you need? Right. And I don't remember hardly anyone ever coming over for dinner itself. They would come over and play and do other things, but very few people came over and ate food. So was, no stovetop stuffing in your house? Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? My, we didn't even have a microwave. My dad thought that they gave microwaves off and that that wasn't good for kids. So we bought a new house at one point, and we had a microwave, and I remember him. He was not very handy, taking all day to remove it and then putting it outside in a safe spot. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favorite like, memories. So. Do you have any memories um, of your childhood? I mean, I, I sort of I think about my childhood and going over and eating dinner at other people's houses. Do you have any memories of, of that? And th- were there things you wished that you had? Like, w- did anything ever come out of a microwave in your childhood at somebody else's house playing? And you were like, man, I wish we had a microwave. 
Is something you missed? No, strangely enough, my parents were very good at indoctrinating us into those things. So we had, for example, wheat germ, apparently, where I grew up, was what you put in cereal as opposed to sugar. Right. I thought that was totally normal because my mom would just add extra wheat germ. And it wasn't until I was, I think, seven that I realized that carob isn't chocolate. (laughs) Now, that gave me years of therapy. (laughs) But, of course, these days I actually enjoy carob, so I'm happy that they sort of instilled that one at an early age. But, no, I don't feel like I missed anything, per se. I just realized that there was a divide between the people who like to cook and the people who don't. And I think what strikes me now is food has become very popular both in terms of a real way and perhaps maybe a little less of a real way. Um, But it's around. And so I think people of a younger generation sort of take for granted that everyone knows about food. But when we were kids, and obviously back before, food was a method to survive, usually. It was just, especially in northern Minnesota, like you ate because you had to get energy. It's cold. People didn't really concentrate much on it. And the fact that my family gave it time and interest and the fact that we had a living room that we never went into, we sat in the kitchen... You know, was a little more of an old world, at least in our culture, European style. Right. And I think that that makes a difference, or made yeah. a difference. Definitely. I was curious to uh, to go back to contracting for a minute and uh, ask you about: um, Do you have a do you have a favorite project? Like, do you look back, or are you working on something now that you feel like this is like <laughs> one of the greatest things that you've ever built as a contractor? I mean, you know, or challenges that were met, or I think perhaps one of my favorite things I ever got to work on, and the, the word contractor is sort of funny because I think of us as builders more a contractor and intimate something different, but I got invited to go to Ireland, to the north of Ireland, or actually it was in the Republic, but the northern part of the Republic, uh, for a summer to learn how to work on stone walls and do some other miscellaneous things, which wound up including the most cursory of blacksmithing courses I've ever had, but it lasted for a while. And that was probably the most engaged and fulfilling experience I've ever had when it comes to building, because I got to work around some older crafts folks who've been doing this forever in a place where it stood Longer, not that any place I'd ever been, but where I actually got to actively do something with it. Right. And so the fact that the house had been built in the 1600s, I've seen houses that are older, but I've never gotten to touch them. I've never gotten to actually right. take stone out and put it back. And I've also never experienced anything built on the sea. And the irony is, is that here's a house that stood the test of time that people now in Ireland like to build with sheetrock and other materials, which is fine, but make fun of. And yet, if you put a car outside the seawall... In one season, it'd be reduced to dust. Right. So that was one of my more um, lucky and profound experiences. In terms of locally, honestly, they all have different aspects that are cool. Sure. I mean, I'll relate to the Broken Kitchen. Like That was sort of a fun adventure because it was such a strange... I don't even know what to call it. I would call it half-disaster. Yeah, you know when, you, for sure. when we first saw the building, it was like the building was in such crazy shape. Yeah, it still is. I mean, it's a weird, well, it's, it's a weird I mean, building. It's a really and strange the fact that we got property. to kind of wrangle it into something usable. Yeah, 
I mean, I remember you remember this. We were in the back and ripped out some BX. Yep. Was ungrounded. Yep. And it lit on fire. Yeah. I mean, you know, those things, they make your life brighter. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's, a, it's the sum of its parts, right? It's Absolutely. A, it's that kind of thing. Well, we're, uh, we're out of time today on Feast Your Ears, but thank you, David, for, uh, for joining me. Um, it's, been, it's been fun to, to talk about and, and sort of think about. You know, I, I would encourage uh, listeners, you know, next time you see a bunch of guys sitting outside of an active construction site eating Chinese food, um, you know, think about the fact that they're all bonding over that, right? And that's a very New York thing, and it's one of the great things about New York. And, you know, it's, you know the Chinese food is bringing us all together. So next time you open up a Chinese takeout <laughs> container, think about how it can bring you together with, with your fellow man. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tadashor for engineering. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and also on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 